Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Oh, yeah. Hello, I am Joe Laurent, and welcome to Hold the Line, the podcast for force free gun dog training. Hold the Line is committed to helping you train your dog to an advanced level using motivational methods and without the use of fear or pain. Thank you for tuning in and please make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Hold the Line. Hi everybody. So I've got a couple of emails to get us started. So firstly, email from Chris which says, how about addressing the issue of training a bitch in season or more to the point, training a dog when their mind is on a bitch in season? Only mentioning this as we have one at the peak of season now and our three-year-old male has his mind on nothing else. So, yeah, so basically there are two, I think we can sort of say there are two broad responses towards this. That's what I've observed anyway. I'm not entirely sure where I stand on this one, but I think I feel that I, I stand with the second response I'm about to describe but the first way of looking at this is saying that a dog in season is almost a completely different category of distraction we shouldn't really expect male dogs to be able to pay attention in the presence of this distraction we should try to move away from it we should try to separate them from it we should try to prevent dogs in season being at events where there are other dogs around and by all means necessary we should just do whatever we have to do to stop male dogs being in the presence of female dogs in season so that is probably characterizes one way of looking at this and then the other way of looking at this is that a female dog in season is just another distraction like any other distraction and some dogs may find it incredibly distracting but you know what some dogs find bazillions of things incredibly distracting we still work with those distractions and this this way of thinking about it sort of questions why do we need to think about it as a completely separate category of distraction why can we not work with it and kind of use it in some way so there's a great youtube video from fanny gott trainer in sweden that i will try and put a link to this uh, video in the show notes for this week but what it shows is um I think it's a collie. One of her dogs is a collie and is very distracted by another dog in season. And she's trying to train doing agility. And what she basically ends up doing is using <laughs> using the female in season as a, as a reinforcer, using access to the female in season as a reinforcer. So if the dog performs some small manageable agility task, they're then released to go and have a sniff of this dog, which is in season, which is on leash and... Um, 
nothing is allowed to happen but the dog gets to satisfy themselves by investigating it a little bit and then comes away and does a little bit more agility and then is allowed to be released and go back and investigate and so the dog basically learns to have access to investigating the female season they need to respond in order to be released back to it and you can see the the transformation of the dog's behavior through the course of this session which is very interesting and that's why i'll try and put a link in the show notes but a dog goes from being incredibly distracted not being able to respond at all to the handler and just being obsessed with getting to this female dog through to responding really quickly because that's the way to get access to the female dog so it's it's like we always talk about environmental reinforcers and the way um, I mean, a good way to use it is the go sniff game. So when we're doing heel work and I get good focus from the dog, I'll say go sniff and then le- release the dog to go and sniff on the ground nearby. And I'll often bend over and encourage them to do that after I've said go sniff. So then I wait for the dog to look back up at me and they mark that and reinforce. And at first I might immediately release to go go sniff again. And over time I might ask for a little bit of work from the dog, a little bit of heel work or focus before I then release them back to go sniff again so the idea is we're still using this reinforcer off our person to reinforce focus on our person and this is exactly the same idea that Fanny got uses in this YouTube clip so I know that's not really a very practical solution for a lot of people because you're not going to have conveniently placed female dogs in season that you can use as um, as a distraction slash reinforcer for to do this training um but i think it's an interesting idea and this sort of second way of thinking about the situation kind of puts it that the more we try and avoid this the more interesting and novel this is to the dog so the more the dogs are kept away from females in season not allowed access to them and the more unusual this is and the more exciting and interesting it becomes and if dogs instead grow up with female dogs who go through heat cycles and obviously being separated from them when necessary then the dogs are a bit more blah about it all and it's just less um it blows their mind a bit less perhaps except for the really really sort of standing heat time in the middle so i think that's interesting as well um i tend to err on that side i think that kind of allowing the dogs to have a safe form of contact is a valuable way of taking some of the charge out of this and some taking some of the novelty factor and therefore reinforcement value out of it so yeah so i think that it's also something that i've seen sort of changing a little bit over the time that i've been running classes when i first started to run classes probably about 15 years ago there was the sort of attitude that you would never even think of taking a female dog in season to a class. I'm just talking a general training class here, not a gun dog training class. And the sort of belief that you just never think of doing that. And now I do know lots of trainers who allow dogs in season in their classes. They are all on leash and they are kept away from the other dogs and they allow them to come to class when they're in season. And they see it as valuable for the male dogs in the class to learn to concentrate on their handlers with a female dog in season in the class. So I think this is changing a little bit as well. It's a kind of cultural change that I've seen in that respect too. Anyway, I think that's enough waffling about dogs in season. Um, Maybe it's thrown up some interesting things and interesting ideas. 
So the next email I had is from Rick, who says, Hi, Joe. I have your book and find it very helpful and clearly written. That's very nice. Thank you for letting me know that. I hope this question is not too elementary. No questions are too elementary. All questions are welcome. I have not followed your podcast for long, and you may have covered this. However, I'll ask anyway. I'm a novice at gun dog training. I have an almost three-year-old lab that I've been training for the last year or so for North American field or hunt tests. He's highly driven to retrieve and mostly is eager to please me. I train him to deliver bumpers to hand mostly by using the expectation of another retrieve as a reward. He performs most requirements perfectly for lower level hunt tests. However, we have hit a stumbling block. For some reason, he does not return real birds to hand. He lines and retrieves well, then drops the bird 10 feet away and leaves it. My training colleagues tell me he was not properly trained to hold, which is true, but is there anything I can do at this point? Some of the difficulties that real birds are not generally available to me until the competition. Any suggestions are appreciated. Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is where there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now, the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. So, people who know me well will know what I'm going to say. It's it's three words. It is the clicker retrieve. So... <laughs> Whatever your retrieving problem, the clicker retrieve is the answer to it. If your dog won't bring stuff back to hand, it's the clicker retrieve. If your dog plays keep away and runs around you in circles, it's the clicker retrieve. If your dog shows zero interest in picking anything up and retrieving at all, the answer is the clicker retrieve. Um, God, what other problems are there people have? If your dog runs out, picks up and then drops halfway back to you, it's the clicker retrieve. If your dog will pick up some things, but other things they just won't pick up, it's the clicker retrieve. So whatever your retrieving issue, it is the clicker retrieve. The clicker retrieve is the force-free version of force fetch. So Rick, your hunting buddies are correct that your dog was not properly trained to hold. If you trained him as you described by throwing out another retrieve when he brought back the previous one. So however, you don't need to force fetch him like probably your hunting buddies have done with their dogs you just need to do the clicker retrieve and then you will address all of this so when you do the clicker retrieve it's important that you generalize the process to different items so 
I sort of start, well, I try to first make sure that I cover both both the main types of dummy that there are, which may not be applicable to you in North America. So there are plastic bumpers, as you call them in North America, and um, that's the most common type of dummy in North America. And then there are canvas dummies, which are very common in Europe. So if you live in Europe, I recommend you do both. I really like using the plastic bumpers for the vast majority of training with my dogs. I really only use the canvas dummies when I'm in competition or assessment, or that's kind of what is required. Because I find that I like to use white dummies because they show up much better and they're much better for marking. So the dog will see the white dummy against the sky and they'll see it on the ground and they'll just run to it and be able to pinpoint it without taking their eyes off that off the location of fall. Whereas if the dummy is the same color as the grass, then it tends to blend in and the dog ends up hunting up, learning to hunt up the object or the dummy. And so learning to use their nose and not their eyes and really from developing marking ability you want them to be using their eyes not their nose so and gun dogs are all bred to have a great nose and they kind of all end up teaching themselves how to use their noses anyway it's not something we need to teach them they kind of just have that as an ability but what we do often need to kind of encourage is this use of eyes so i like to use white dummies to encourage eyes and white canvas dummies get really dirty really quickly so i like to use white plastic bumpers or if they're made of plastic actually it might be rubber or something else but the kind of you know black plasticky white material um they don't get dirty so the dirt just falls off them and that's why i like them anyway what am i talking about you need to generalize your retrieve to white plastic bumpers and your canvas dummies if you're going to ever use those and your docking bird shaped dummies and your fur rabbit fur dummies and your pheasant pelt dummies so you can buy dummies and buy pheasant pelt that you wrap around the dummy so that it has the texture and the feel of the feathers in the dog's mouth and ideally you have some cold game in your freezer which you can then get out at the relevant point of the click of retrieve and generalize your retrieve to that as well if you don't have cold game in your freezer maybe somebody else does and maybe you can borrow some um i don't know you said you don't have access to birds until the competition but you must be able to get access to birds. It's just people that you have to ask nicely if you can have some. So even if you just have some cold game, then you can get the dog used to picking up the bird. You might want to start with stockings at first. A lot of people find that very useful to put the bird in um, women's stockings because it holds all the feathers in so they don't kind of flail out everywhere and, and kind of freak the dog out a little bit. And also the stocking being a fabric material is a bit more familiar to the dog than feathers to begin with. So people like to put the bird in a stocking and then as the dog is okay with the bird in the stocking to then cut a little hole in the stocking and poke a wing through. So there's a bit of a bird sticking out and progress from there. But when you are introducing all these items, oh, and the other things I like to do my click retrieve with is just general junk around the house. So basically I like to have a sort of plastic bag or a um, tub near my bin which in north america you call your garbage and i like to kind of put everything that i might use for the click retrieve in that so everything that I, i'm about to throw out i stop myself and think wait a minute could i use this for the click retrieve could this be a retrieve article and a lot of the time the answer is yes so um junk lying around your house pens that have run out old spoons that are too bent or film cartridges or half of a clothes peg which has snapped off or um, cut off bits of pipe or small pieces of wood that are left from some DIY project as long as they've not got splinters in them. So basically as long as something is safe 
um, you can use it as a click retrieve item. So you're kind of storing all these things up so that when you want to generalize your click retrieve, you're not walking around the house going, oh my God, what can I use as a click retrieve item? Let's just find something, anything. Um, but you have like this bag of stuff to go to. So, um, so you've got all your items. We've covered all the things that you want to generalize this to. What you're going to do with all these items is go right back to the very beginning of the click retrieve. So I have a whole series of podcast episodes on the click retrieve. If you look back through earlier episodes, you'll see phase one, whatever it is, wherever it begins, or there might even be an introduction to the click retrieve before that. Um, so go back right there, and that's what you're going to be doing with these items. So you will be placing them on the floor at your feet, clicking your dog for looking at the item, clicking your dog for heading towards the item, clicking your dog for nose touching the item, and so on and so forth. Now, I have an online course which teaches the clicker retrieve. So if you want some specific input into how to do the clicker retrieve, including videos, then do let me know. There's also a Facebook group where you can post the videos of your training and I'll give you feedback. So feel free to get in touch if you'd like to um, sign up for that online course. You can email me at joe at dogworks.org.uk. So that's J-O at D-O-G-W-O-R-K-S dot org dot uk. And you can sign up then to do the click of achieve. But yeah, so that's that I'm pretty sure is going to solve it for you. I mean, it's very common for dogs to be really familiar and kind of blah about retrieving on dummies of any just any type. And when it comes to birds, they're just suddenly weird to the dog. And it can be a bit frustrating at first. And when you do move on to live game, it can sort of freak the dog out a little bit. So there've been situations like, um, I remember with my with my Weimarana, when we first introduced her to game, if the game was still alive, which it was a couple of times, because when you first start to shoot over a dog, you don't know if the game falls down and hits the ground and appears to be still, you don't know if it actually is dead or if it's just been pricked and it's going to come back to life when the dog gets to it. But ideally, you want to only send the dog for a game which is dead dead at first. And you might even want to walk out and check that it actually is dead dead before you um, send the dog for it. But there will still come a time when the dog is going to be confronted with a bird which is still alive and is going to have to um, grab it. And that can be a bit intimidating for a dog. And I remember that my Weimaran found that a little difficult. She would sort of dance around it, um, kind of like she really wanted to get it, but she was also afraid of getting it. She wanted to get it, she was afraid of getting it. And it almost looked like she was playing with it, which I think um, a few people, a few other people who were there were worried about, but I wasn't worried about that. But it did look to some eyes like she may be playing with it. And she wasn't, she just didn't have the confidence to pick it up given that it was still alive. So I think it's something that a lot of dogs go through, this sort of um, process of learning how to retrieve game of all descriptions. And we have to kind of recognize that and not just expect them to make the transition really easily from dummies to game, because often it's a little more complicated than that. So I do think it also helps if you can introduce puppies when they're really young to fur and feather ideally to game but if you don't have access to game itself to just feral feather dummies and so i do recommend that you go to some online gundog supply store and have a look at the various types of dummy that they have which which can help you move towards something which is more like game so like i mentioned the docking dummies um the dummies with the with a pheasant pelt that you can wrap around them and the rabbit fur dummies 
and make sure you've got some of those in to generalize it to. Even so, none of that is quite like the real thing. None of it, none of it is quite like the real thing, but it's it it helps the dog generalize it beyond just something made of canvas or made of plastic, and is also a useful step towards the real thing. So I hope that's helped. But yeah, the answer to your question is the click and retrieve. So investigate that and make sure you follow it. There's a process. I do think that whilst obviously it's clear I don't think force fetch is a good idea I do believe that it's best if dogs are trained to retrieve in a formal way and and the sort of the retrieve is formalized in this way and that is behind that's the belief behind force fetch and I know from talking to people in America online over the years that they believe that a dog is not well will not have a reliable retrieve unless it has been force fetched they just just will state that flat out that the dog will not have a reliable retrieve unless it's force fetched and i completely disagree that we have to put the dog through an aversive process to achieve a reliable retrieve but i do kind of agree that the retrieve needs to be formalized for best results and that there are often little weaknesses in it which we can identify and iron out and work on when we do the click achieve process and it was just a stronger behavior if we break it down and train it up in into its component parts so I hope that's convinced you to give the click of chief a go, Rick. And yeah, that's what I have to say on that one. Hold the line. So next, I just thought I would talk a little bit about handling in terms of one of the things that I see is lots of people who train using force-free methods getting reasonable levels of obedience from their dogs often pretty good levels of obedience so dog can heal pretty well it's responsive will sit at their side is steady has a good retrieve will go out and pick up the dummy and will bring it back to hand when it's a mark at least and things seem to get a bit stuck at that point for a lot of people and it's like people are not really sure about what to do after that what do you do when you've got a dog which has a decent basic retrieve to hand how do you progress that and move on from just being one of the bazillion million squillion people with other people with that to to achieve something which is going to make you stand out a little bit more and uh, i don't know have a better dog have a dog which is going to be able to be more successful in competitions and in a working situation it's going to be more useful because you can put them onto retrieves that you haven't actually seen fall so all of this is about handling and I think people get a little stuck and they're not really sure where to begin. So I know that I've talked a little bit in recent podcast episodes about lining and I've given you some suggestions for lining drills. So when you've got your food bowls that you've been putting out um, in front of you and if you want to listen back to the recent episodes, you can catch up on that. I won't repeat it all, but there's basically the three in a row drill, which we can do with food bowls and we can do it with posts in the field with dummies at the base of the posts. We've also got the wagon wheel drills, which I've spoken about recently. And this sort of category of drills is about teaching the dog to go where we're pointing them to go. So don't go to that one over there, which I'm not pointing to. Go to this specific one here, which I am pointing to. And even when the one that you don't want them to go to is closer, is more appealing, is easier in their eyes that you still want them to make the choice of taking the line which you're giving them with your hand and going to the one which you're lining them to. So I think this is this is a skill 
And this skill is lining. And that's what we're trying to teach the dog. We're trying to teach the dog, go where I point and don't go to whatever appears to be easiest. And there's various different ways we can teach the dog that concept. So in the wagon wheel drills, obviously we have our four white dummies, which we're throwing out at 12 o'clock, three o'clock, six o'clock and nine o'clock. And what happens with those is that we don't send the dog to the one we just threw. So we just throw one out and then we rotate and we send the dog to the next one. And if you want more information on that, again, listen back to the podcast episode recently on wagon wagon wheels. But the idea is that we're not sending to the dog to the one they most want to get. To the one they most want to get, most dogs, is the one they just saw. So we're teaching the dog the concept of not that one you just saw, which appears to be easier, but this one that I'm sending you to. And then the lining, the, the three in a row lining jaw, which can also be five in a row lining jaw if you want to make it a little more challenging, is again about don't go to the one that you're going to have to run right past, <laughs> temptingly, but go to the one that I'm pointing you towards, even though it's further away. And even though the angle that I'm sending you on is going to take you temptingly close to the one that you're not supposed to get. So all of these drills are teaching the dog, don't get the one that I'm not pointing to. There's also a drill, what's the name of it now? I can't remember, but it's basically got two white fence posts, which demarcate dummy piles and in between those two white fence posts there's a an orange dummy pile which is further back than the two white posts and so the idea is a dog has to line between these two white fence posts which probably hmm, probably about 10 10 15 yards apart a dog has to take your line from your hand between these two white fence posts, even though they can't see the orange dummy and not run to the white fence, because they have to recognize you're not actually pointing to these two visible things that look very obvious to the dog and that you actually are pointing to this thing which is between them. And in that particular drill, you are going to go from the white fence post on the left, the dog gets that one, and then you're going to go to the far pile in the middle which is orange dummy and then you're going to go to the white fence post on the right which is visible and then you go back to the invisible orange dummy pile in the middle then you're going to go to the visible white fence post on the left and so you just keep going left invisible pile in the middle right invisible pile in the middle left invisible pile and so the dog is kind of learning to distinguish whether you're pointing towards the invisible pile or the one that can see on the left and right so I think all of this is about the dog and you learning to be attuned to each other. The dog learns, oh, when you do this particular thing, it means this. And they're just really just learning to take a really fine line from you. It may not translate across very well to other handlers because if your dog's going to be handled by someone who's never handled them before, that person may not use the same body language or give the line in the same way. And so these kind of things may not work so well. Um, so anyway, that's one skill the lining skill then there is kind of what i call the run or the ability of the dog to just keep going just to keep going and you will kind of see this and get a sort of sense of what the dog's run is when you start to do memory retrieves is the first thing you start to see it like how easy is it to get distance on the memory retrieves is the dog just run 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 and run quite happily even like 100 150 200 yards is the dog just happy just to run and then you can build that run eventually into your sight blinds when you've got a white post at 
at that distance with dummies at the base of it and then into eventually your cold blinds so i don't like to run too many cold blinds in training because there's nothing to keep the dog on the straight line and the risk is that the dog will not take a very good line then will hunt around everywhere and eventually find the retrieve so we don't really want that to happen so i kind of for a long time we'll use the white fence posts and the things to help the dog run straight but this the thing we're developing here is is why called run i don't know if i've ever heard anyone else call it run but i just call it run I just got like how much the dog likes to just go and yeah so I don't know what else to call that really um confidence is part of it and speed is part of it and drive is all is part of it all these things are part of it but I just sort of call it run so um yeah so that's one thing and you can be building that in with your memories to begin with and then with lining to your white fence post and really extending the distance on that as well so that's eventually you're going to bring these skills together and then there's also your handling when the dog is at a distance from you so when the dog is kind of sitting and facing you and you're teaching the dog to take a cast left or right or back over there left left back or right back um, then this is a handling skill the skill the dog needs is bears a lot has a lot in common with the skill the dog needs when they're going from your side in that when you send a dog from your side and you give them a line you want them to take the line from you and to hold that line and to keep running in a straight line as much as possible and not to stop until you tell them to stop so when when we want the dog to go left or right or back it's the same idea we want the dog to take a straight line and to keep running until we tell them to do something else the only difference is that instead of taking the straight the line from our hand being outside and with that when we put our arm out and line the dog with our own hand instead of taking the line when they're facing us so they're looking at what arm we're sticking out and where it's pointing to and they're taking the line from that but the skill in terms of the run and the keeping going until told to do otherwise is the same so these skills are very similar obviously there's a whole level of handling that comes in in terms of the dog learning when you put out your left hand what you mean or your right hand what you mean i'm not going to go into how to train all of that but again there are drills so i really like to start it quite small actually i'm going into how to train it all now never mind let's just do that so i like to start it quite small with what we call three-handed casting and i have done that with with my labrador with when she was a little puppy before she'd finished the clicker retrieve i used some mats some sort of platforms and i did casting on platforms like to the left left platform right i'm not sure whether that really it took a, it took a while to train that i'm not sure whether it really i'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be but i don't have an ad break i just have me and my whistle my trusty t12 on which i'm going to play you a tune the sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit so bits of plastic have broken off so it will only blow if i blow it really loudly then a note will come out otherwise it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order 
And I'd like to reassure you that the, the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend. And I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me, though, because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. Whether her understanding of the concept was better than it would have been if we hadn't done that, I don't know. If we just started with the retrieve like I had done with previous dogs, I don't know. But the idea is that I start on a small scale. I think that's important, that you start small. And then once the dog can understand your casting in a small level, you just make it a little bit bigger. So it's the same exercise, but over a slightly bigger area. And then I would move it out into the field and I would try to incorporate it into what's going to become my T-drill. So the T-drill has the dog running out from your side. Eventually, when you finish training it, the dog runs out from your side. So it's a bit, it's called a T because it's like a, a small letter T. So if you imagine a lowercase letter T, that's what the T-drill is like. So the dog will start at the bottom of the long bit of the T and at your side and you'll send them out and where where the T, where the lines cross over in the middle of your T, that's where you'll stop the dog. And then you will either cast them left along your T line or right, or you can even cast them back to continue onto the dummy at the back pile, which is where you originally lined them for in the first place. And you're going to kind of alternate stopping the dog to cast versus letting the dog run to the back pile. Because if you stop them too much, you'll, you will end up with them popping because they'll anticipate the stop. And so you need to kind of be very careful judging how often you're going to stop them and how often you're going to let them run to the back pile so that they keep up their confidence and their momentum and they don't come to anticipate the stop. So that's the T-drill. So the T-drill involves lining to those white fence posts, but it's going to use the fence posts on the left and right as well, not just uh, uh, something to run to from your side, but you're going to stop the dog in the middle and you're going to cast them left to a fence post or right to a fence post. So we're starting to use these fence posts at the end of other casts as well. So the way I think you to think about it is like, it's like handling is like these little pockets of skills and we're kind of focusing on these skills as identifiable separate skills and then they all build together to make up the perfect retrieve, as it were. There's probably not such a thing as a perfect retrieve. But, you know, the retrieve where you can send the dog out from the side and the dog takes a really good line from your hand at your side. And then because nature is what it is, your dog ends up being slightly off where you need them to be. So you sit the dog and then they will take an accurate cast from your hand, left or right or back, and they will keep going and they won't stop. And then, oh, this is the other bit I haven't got to you so far. So when you think you've got the dog in the area, then you would sit the dog and you would tell the dog to hunt so you would you would give your hunting cue and there are two different 
main hunting cues. There's either a verbal hunting cue or a whistle hunting cue. So in the UK, at least, the verbal hunting cue usually goes either lost, lost, or it goes there, there, with the Yorkshire accent, you can do that. Um, or, or there's the whistle cue. The whistle cue, my whistle cue goes something like peep, 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 peep. So it has this like falling pitch to it. And this cue, we can get to the hunting cue, is quite interesting actually. We'll get to that in another podcast episode maybe. But the hunting cue is trained through association with the behavior that you want. So in turn whistle is, I, is in hunting for HBRs and Spaniels, I train this in the same way. So basically... Um, if you think about when you have a little puppy that you're trying to toilet train and you take the puppy out to go to the toilet, the whole time the puppy is like sniffing the floor and doing the toilet waddle and squatting and starting to toilet and actually toileting, you're going, well, whatever word you want to put to that. <laughs> I stupidly probably say like, wee, 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 or something, which I then don't want to actually say in public. But if you're more sensible, you probably say something like, busy busy or hurry up hurry up or something like that which is far more sensible to stay in public um but the idea is that through association you're associating this cue with the act of having a poo or we eliminating so it's the same with the turn whistle and with the hump whistle and the, the verbal hunt cue that i tend to set things up so that i set up an exercise so that the dog is hunting in a little area and whilst dog is hunting in the area, so it might I'll use sort of a, a an area of cover, and the cover is clearly demarcated. So the whole field is not covered because that would be silly because they wouldn't know where it was. So we have like a little clutch of reeds or um, a bush or something or fallen tree makes a great idea sometimes as well. Um, and then I would hide several dummies in there, probably like three or four dummies. And these would be dummies I don't want the dog to see because this is the occasion when I do want the dog to start to use their nose. So it wouldn't be white dummies, it would be green dummies. They would be small, smaller as well, so they're harder for the dog to find. And then I would sit the dog facing me, just next to that fallen tree, let's call it for now. Um, so the fallen tree is on the right of the dog and the dog is sitting there facing me and I will retreat to a distance. So it's as if I've stopped the dog in that location. And then I will lean over to one side and I will bend, I will with my hand quite low to the floor, do sort of stirring the soup bowl motion. And it looks different to my hard right cast. So it's basically a different cue. So hard, if I put my arm out at shoulder height and did a sort of aerobic step to the right, that would be a hard right cast for my dog. Whereas if I sort of keep my body still and don't take a step, but I bend over and I do a sweeping motion towards the floor, then that kind of means it's, it's close to you, start where you are, but start on your right, if I'm doing this on my right. Um, and then the dog will start to hunt up in that little area just, just next to where they are. While the dog is hunting, and by the way, the dog is going to hunt anyway, because they've just seen me put out all these dummies in training. So in training, they know that there's stuff there to look for. So while the dog is hunting, I am then going peep, 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 on my whistle the whole time the dog is hunting. And if I want to do a verbal cue, I'll be going lost, lost the whole time the dog is hunting. And this is one occasion when we don't mind repeating the cue over and over again. So you've probably heard people say before, never repeat, repeat a cue, only say a cue once, never repeat a cue. But this sort of associative training is not the same thing. We won't get into like the whole learning theory side of it, but 
is exactly the same as when you take the puppy out to go to the toilet and you're going wee 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 or poo poo like while they're going to the toilet you wouldn't just say poo once and then expect your dog to make that association you will make a stronger cue if if it is repeated whilst whilst the dog is doing it in these occasions so um yeah so with a hunt cue while the dog is hunting you are giving your verbal or whistle hunt cue repeatedly and that way cementing together these two things so that in the future when you do do your your hunting whistle or your verbal hunt cue that the dog switches into hunting mode so that's the end that's the final kind of piece of our jigsaw puzzle as it were of putting together our handling so the dog starts at our side they take a nice line from our side out to where we've actually pointed not just running out randomly because they have no idea what lining is and what it means they're actually going to a particular place we've pointed them to and when they get offline a little bit we're able to stop them and we're able to give them a a hard cast left or right or back and they will take that with a relatively straight line and they will keep hunting with so keep running with a lot of run so they've got a lot of go and then we feel we've got them in the area and we want to pass the sort of locus of control as it were over to the dog we stop the dog and we give them the hunt cue and that says it's over to you now I've put you in the area. I can't help you anymore. I've got you as close to where I think it is as I can. It's over to you. You use your nose out there now and you start close to where you are and gradually widen your circle of hunting. By the way, I'm going to give you an extra tip. I think it's on your left or I think it's on your right and depending on where you're doing your your hand gesture sweepy thing. Um, So then the dog finds the dummy and brings it back or the bird and brings it back. So... That way you've got all these little component pieces of your retrieve that you've put together for the final finished product. Now, what often happens in training classes, unfortunately, is not training. Unfortunately, it's often testing. So often you will go to a training class and you'll be told, hi, everyone, we're going to practice some blind retrieves today. There's a dummy that I've put up there under that tree, like 80 yards away. Let's do some training. And then everybody tries to put all these pieces together to get their dog to go out there. And the dogs just don't understand what on earth is happening. And it just all falls apart. So instead, we have to really figure out where each individual dog is, what their requirements are. Does one dog dog not have the confidence to keep running? They just run out and they pop. So they might run out and they look back at you, in which case they need more work on memories or on lining to visible things to give them confidence to keep running and then gradually extending the distance as a dog is able to manage it um or is the dog just they've got lots of run and they're really running but they're just not running anywhere like where you're pointing they're just taking off in some other random direction in which case they need lining drills and they need some help with lining um so yeah so basically all these little bits they're all an integral part of the finished retrieve and we need to sort of just testing the dogs by setting up scenarios to challenge them. There's a place for that, by the way. There's a place to see how's it all coming together at the moment and, you know, what is it actually looking like? But you don't need to do it very often. You just, like, need to do it... Well, if you actually... If you run in tests or trials, then you're that's all you need to do, really, because that's your opportunity to see how is it all coming together when you're in that situation. Um, or if you work your dog when you're actually in a real-life situation, then that is an opportunity to see how it's all coming together. So I don't think there's much need to be you know testing the dog in a training scenario instead we need to be isolating these component parts that are not working and thinking about how can we work on this one specific little detailed thing which we're going to then subsequently put together into the whole um and 
the sort of overall picture of our superb retriever is going to grow. I hope that makes some sense. Um, it might not. It is 1.40 in the morning and I'm going to go to bed now. But I hope that that has been useful to you. Um, and I'm also going to publish it before, without even listening back to it. Heck, let's just go for it. So, um, yeah, I hope this has been useful. And I will be back again soon. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line. Hold the line.